Hello nerds, how you doing? It's Ryan here, one of your hosts of Into the Wild. Can't say host anymore, it's got to be one of or your co-host. My other lovely co-host Nadia Shape will not be featuring on today's episode. Don't worry, she's absolutely fine, she's just not here. We live 350 miles away from each other, it's quite hard to do spur-of-the-moment episodes <laughs> together. But how are you doing? You're all enjoying spring. It's banging, isn't it? I'm walking on a bit, um, a park called Parkland Walk, just by my house, an old abandoned railway. But it's all grown over and lovely and it's kept very wild. And I think it's about to absolutely piss it down. You know, I can see black clouds surrounding me and I've got the one patch of blue above me. So I'm going to try and do this intro as quick as I can. <laughs> Otherwise I'll be, oh my God, there's a man hanging in the tree. I thought that was something harrowing then. He's doing it intentionally. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Why do people do stuff like this? Anyway, welcome to this little bonus episode. Um, this, as well as our monthly episodes, myself and Nadia will, when we can, um, start doing little bonus things when we go around doing naturey things or meeting people or being on location somewhere. We'll try our best to have a few interviews to be able to create extra content for you all. <laughs> um, and this is my first one. So let's tell you what uh, this little episode's about. So a couple of weeks ago, I was very fortunate enough to attend the Whitley Awards. Now, those of you that don't know what the Whitley Awards are or have never heard of the Whitley Fund for Nature, listen up. Let me fill you in. Um, quite simply, the Whitley Fund for Nature is a UK fundraising and grant-giving charity. It supports conservation leaders, basically, working in their home countries across the global south. And over 29 years, they've channeled £20 million to more than 200 conservationists in 80 countries, which is just absolutely incredible. And I was, um, like I said, privileged enough to attend the Whitley Awards 2023, a couple of weeks ago, which is... Um, there to award the winners of that year who get their grants get some cash much needed cash as we all know that's the way that every sector works <laughs> it needs the money um, but it's also a chance for them to network meet NGOs um, and people that work for them directors and other um, financial opportunities as well and also talk to the media and talk to podcasts like Into the Wild so it was a lovely evening uh, lots of celebration, lots of learning, lots of handshaking, lots of wine. And um, then the next day, very last minute, but I was even more privileged enough to get invited back down to Kensington to meet two of the winners, uh, winners of the event, which is Leonard Akwani from Kenya and Juliana Badola from Mexico. Leonard is involved in community-based conservation work in Lake Victoria, uh, the Kenyan section working to restore the native species of fish in that area and to support the livelihoods of the surrounding communities that rely on that population of fish and the water itself. And Juliana, who works with some um, small islands off the coast of um, her community, part of Mexico, um, to restore and protect the seabird populations there. But not only that, work with the local fishermen in that area and also encourage women to join learn and take part in the active conservation work on the islands as well. So I ran down to Kensington, well I didn't, I got the tube, and 
<laughs> we struggled to find a place to record, I won't lie to you, so we picked the noisiest cafe we could in a hotel. Um, there is a bit of background noise, but thanks for your patience as always. It was a very spur of the moment interview, um, but it was a lovely interview nonetheless. So I hope you enjoy this episode. This is just a little bonus a chat with two of the winners from the Whitley Awards, Leonard Akwani and Yuliana Badola. Enjoy. So welcome. Well, first of all, I should say congratulations to you both. Um, it must have been a very intense 24 hours receiving your awards last night. Um, so for my listeners, I'm sat here with Juliana and Leonard, two of the award winners from the Whitley Fund for Nature Awards 2023 last night. I was there to see them um, and others collect and also to be fair, collect your awards, but also you, you all did some nice speeches and they were, they were quite short, but they were quite powerful. Everything everyone said was quite a nice sum up. So Juliana, I'll start with you. How was last night for you? How was it being in front of everyone? receiving recognition, um, not just for yourself, but for all the people involved in the projects that you do. How was it to be in front of all those people and, and get that recognition? Oh my God, uh, well, that was amazing. It was a very rewarding moment mm. for me. And it's something that I never imagined that I will experience in my life, really. Um, it, because everyone there was so warming and they were expecting to us, you know, to, to have a great time there. So I felt, I don't know, a great excitement. Yeah, yeah. yeah. very nervous too, because <laughs> talking in front of, you know, 500 people is mm -hmm. not easy. And it's my first time doing something similar. So yeah, it nice. was amazing. And it, I, I was very happy because my family, friends and colleagues were also watching the ceremony live. Amazing. Yeah, that, that, that is actually a thing I forgot when I was watching last night, I was forgetting that it was being live streamed. So it was nice to have like the people in your kind of, like you said, your family and friends watching mm -hmm. at home as well. And I've got to say, you say you were nervous, did not come across because I was thinking <laughs> the whole time I was like, OK, as a British guy, there's no way I could go and speak and do a speech in that in front of that many people in a different language <laughs> that is not my own. I was like, this is mad. I could not do this. I can do public speaking, but very much only in English. I'm that stubborn, like, but typical British guy that can't do it. So, yeah, it was, it was amazing to see you. Um, Leonard, how about yourself in front of all those people as well? How is it for you? For me, the feeling was uh, very great. And for me, it was not just about uh, winning the award. Mm. For me, it was about realizing the fact that there are people outside here yeah. who are very supportive of our work, who are very, um, who are following and uh, ready to, to support us, mm. who are ready to advise us, and even ready uh, to put resources into the work that we do. So yesterday, uh, feeling uh, connected to that kind of outside support was very great uh, for me as uh, we struggle, as we advance mm. in our conservation work. So that feeling of outside support, people with listening ears, people are very warm, people are very encouraging, people are very motivating. For me, that was more powerful than just uh, receiving the trophy or receiving the award. It is, it's amazing to be in a room with that many people, isn't it? And, and like, I mean, I was sat there and I just, as all of you were speaking, I could just see the sea of nodding heads. And I think that's something so motivating to see because everyone, regardless of what, 
background you're coming from, what views you're coming from, what political agendas. I think everyone was in that room for the same reasons. We all want to see a world with strengthened biodiversity, of you know community-led where people have livelihood supported again in, in any country we we're talking about where people are on that front line facing with wildlife they're seeing the benefits for their nature for their connection to it and their livelihoods and i think i saw that across the board in the room last night it was so nice um Yuliana, do you want to just tell my listeners a bit about what your project is so what you do what what's the ethos behind what you're doing um, in mexico well uh, well our organization together with the local community of two small islands in the Mexican Pacific. Mm. What we want to achieve is to maintain the islands as safe havens for seabirds. That means free of invasive predators as cats and robins like mice or rats. And we are doing this uh, with collaboration of uh, local fishing cooperatives. So they live on the islands, they work on the island, and they uh, will come and back to the mainland, to the island, with a lot of equipment, a lot of a lot of uh, luggage, well, belongings, and food. Mm. So they have to be very careful about what they are bringing to the island, and just to take care that they are not yeah. bringing a robin, just <laughs> hiding <laughs> between all their stuff. And most importantly, uh, we are working with a group of women, local women. Mm. They are the wives or the fishermen, and they are very committed to to the conservation of the islands. They really are very eager and enthusiastic to do projects with their community about uh, raising awareness and environmental education. So we are giving them uh, some skills. Uh, we are giving them training mm. to do this kind of, um, to develop their own projects and also to monitor some super species on the island that are very important because these two islands are very small, but they are internationally of that, at a global scale. They are very, very important but yeah. because they are the main uh, co- breeding colonies of two species that only breed in Mexico. Oh, wow. So that's why it's, it's important to take care of the, yeah. these breeding sites. And how do you, like, invasive species, you know, globally, that, that's a big task to kind of manage because throughout our history, species have been introduced intentionally and unintentionally. Right. Um, so that must be a big topic. How do you kind of stay on top of that to make sure that these in- invasive species... When, when they're eradicated from the island, don't come back. Yeah, well, that, that's, <laughs> it is a challenge, totally, because we are, during the last 20 years, mm. what we have done, I, I would say, the half of the of the job, of the work that we have, that, that, is, that was removing these invasive mm. mammals from the islands. But now that all the islands have a community related with that they work or they live there, uh, we, we need to continue working on that, on changing the behavior of the people, working with people so that they can Im- um, that they, they can uh, use these measures in their daily lives. So it's like watching your teeth, uh, brushing your teeth yeah. Yeah, every day. So they just take care of what they are bringing to the islands. Uh, that can be part of their um, daily lives. So. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is difficult, uh, but it takes time. It takes this project of long-term mm. um, frame. So, yeah, but it is possible because we have seen that in other parts of the co- of the world. For example, New Zealand, Australia, yeah. United States. Also, they are doing this kind of efforts to maintain the islands free of invasive predators. Mm. And they are. Uh, we also in Me- Mexico, we have uh, several years working with other communities and all the experience that we are gaining all around the world and in our country i think there's it is saying us that it is possible to do it 
And I guess as, as well, it's very easy for conservation to be, we look at things quite, well, certainly in the UK, we look at things at very short term, but this is something you're talking about as a long-term plan to change that kind of, like you said, like it's getting that in that culture of brushing your teeth, that same mindset of it's important, you do it every day to make sure the island's safe. So it's a real long-term plan to kind of secure the wildlife here? Yeah, well, for sure. I think um, we can be sure that our work is done mm -hmm. when we see the communities take care by yeah. themselves of the islands and they they are stewardships or mm. the, the resources and they submit proposals to the government to get funds and to conserve the islands or to restore the, their, their habitats of mm. the species. I think that yeah. will be the moment where we can say we are done here, we yeah. can move, move on to other communities. Oh, isn't that just such a warm feeling though I, I love hearing stuff like that because it's not, it's not a definitive moment it's not like one day you just walk into a room and see a light on it's going to be a real nice gradual change where teams one day will be able to step back and go it's just working look everything it's like you said that stewardship and having yes, that it's right. such a powerful and lovely moment to be able to have for the communities around that around these islands now do you find is it easy to get them involved in this is this something that they already have that passion for the seabirds or is it something that maybe have been lost for any reasons and mm -hmm. it kind of has to be re-encouraged back in? Yeah, definitely it's something that we have to re-encourage okay. because the generations are changing yeah. because we have been working with them for about 15 years and I remember a time when they were just already saying the names of the species and mm. everything but then they moved to another area or maybe then they moved to, uh, I don't know, other city of the main island and they yeah. are not, or not all the time on the same island. Um, now are coming new generations that they don't know what were the problems in the past and why it is important to take care of the, the birds there. So that's why we have to continue working with them. Uh, but they are very interested in the conservation of the islands because, well, they are mostly fishers, uh, fishermen right. uh, working with lobsters and abalone. And they have set uh, some natural protected areas uh, voluntarily. And the government never came or an organization came and said, you should do this. Wow. They did it by themselves. So they already know that it's important to, to do these kind of actions. Yeah. And actually, they are willing to help us all the time with the logistics. And yeah. also, they give us a place to stay when we are on the islands. Amazing. And yes, so actually, we have the support. They don't have this like um, passion for seabirds, but definitely they have the knowledge because they see them all the time and they know that there are a lot of birds around. There are a lot of resources as well um, mm. in the sea. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Like you said, it's that power of knowledge, isn't it? So um, we, we forget to look at that. We, we forget we go there and we go to these places and go, let's let's try and start from scratch where we forget that there's people around these islands already that have such, or wherever we're talking, that have such great power of knowledge because they're there all the time. Yes. <laughs> it makes sense. Leonard, that kind of brings us very nicely onto your project when we're talking about fishing because that is really at the forefront of what you're doing. So do you want to tell us a bit about your project that you were um, awarded this prize for? What is what is it? What's the ethos behind it? What's going on for you in Kenya? Yes, uh, my project is uh, based in Lake Victoria. Uh, Lake Victoria is the second largest freshwater lake in the world. And it is also the largest uh, tropical uh, freshwater lake in, in the world. So this lake <laughs> historically has had over 500 uh, species of fish 
native f f species of fish. Uh, but this has reduced uh, to below 200. Wow. And the reason here is because of uh, overfishing. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason here is because of uh, pollution. Uh, the reason here is because of uh, clearing of the wetlands, mm. which are supposed to be uh, areas for fish breeding. Mm. And then, of course, there is a lot of uh, land-based changes, like agriculture, which is clearing soil, and this is resulting in soil erosion. And there is siltation of the lake, which is making the lake shallow and right. shallow. So there are all these challenges. But of course, my project, or the project that we're working on, or the project which uh, led to winning of the Whitley Award, is focusing on overfishing. Mm. And uh, what we are doing in this regard is to work with the fisher folk communities, those who are at the front line, those who are doing fishing, those whose livelihoods depend on fishing. We are working with them to create what we are calling community fish reserves. So these are areas that each and every beach management unit, there are 281 of them around Lake Victoria on the Kenyan side. Because this lake is shared between Kenya, Tanzania and Uganda in East Africa. But we are starting our work from the Kenyan side. Now we will work with uh, five of those BMUs to create community fish reserves where fish can breed and then uh, repopulate uh, the lake and also uh, this beach management units they're supposed to manage fisheries at their site in their London site but they are not empowered they're just created and then yeah. left on their own so through this uh, award we are going to um, train them on monitoring and surveillance we are going to train them on how to organize themselves how to protect riparian uh, riparian areas and also we are going to train them on how to do resource mobilization within government mm. or for many other development partners to help them strengthen their organization and to help them actively uh, manage uh, their fisheries and then of course we are also going to promote uh, green alternative green livelihoods to diversify for instance uh, help them to improve on their fishing gears to have right uh, fishing gears and also to stop fishing within the fish breeding area and go into the into the main waters so that they can fish there and on this side leave the fish uh, to, to breed. And also closely linked to this project is the empowerment of women. And as I've said several is that if there is less fish, women suffer. And they suffer in terms of women uh, in the fish value chain, they are involved in fish trading with fish mongering. Now, if the men are the people who fish and then bring fish, uh, land fish uh, at, at the beach. Now, if there is less fish, then these women are going to compete uh, for this fish. And through that, then issues of sexual exploitation then comes into picture. So we are also going to empower these women in terms of self-esteem, in terms of confidence, and in terms of being part and parcel of uh, grassroots uh, yeah. fisheries uh, governance but most importantly also to empower them through self-help groups to be able to have their own income generating activities, to own fishing boats. Mm -hmm. And then through that then they will have that economic strength and they will no longer be vulnerable uh, to the gender-based violence that is common uh, within these uh, fishing villages. So in a nutshell, 
this is the project and this is uh, what we're doing around Lake Victoria. It's amazing. I think that's one thing that kind of hit me and my friends that were there last night was throughout all these projects, how much it was focused on women-led as well. Like there was, they kind of run through almost all the projects and it was a real important thing. And I think it kind of tied them all together, maybe unintentionally, but kind of very nicely in that event last night. And I think from someone in the UK, when we look at our conservation in our country, it's very rarely looked at community-led. It's very rarely looked at, you know, is this something that the community need? It's not looked at like that. So when we hear, especially Lake Victoria, something that stood out for me with this project was how much it was because livelihoods were affected by it. And it's important for biodiversity, it's important for the survival of the planet, and, and that ties in nicely and with our um, kind of attitudes in the UK. But something that really hooked me was, well, it's a livelihood thing as well. And, and if these fish go, if this lake um, strength dies down, as does the livelihood in the community as well. So. Like my similar questions to Juliana to yourself is, you know, is it how easy is it to get the community involved in this? Is this a no brainer for them? Are, are the community totally understanding the conservation, the needs for conservation? Um, is it it sounds like it's easy to do, obviously not an easy task, but like the um, is, is that kind of stuff understood clearly yes, uh, in uh, in the part of the world where I come from, uh, we still heavily depend on natural resources. Yeah. Uh, community depend on natural resources for their livelihoods, for their food security, mm. for their employment. Uh, so, so it is very critical that they are at the center of mm. what we are doing, because uh, they are at the front line. Mm. Uh, they are the stewards who needs to be empowered so that they can be able to to manage the resource. And the fact that they have lived with this resource for many years. They have also traditional and local knowledge on how to manage uh, uh, this resource. So it is very, very important because uh, we, we, have, we have found that uh, command and control does not work. Yeah. Top, bottom does not work. The only thing that works is to work with the community. And if you link their livelihoods with the, with the conservation, mm. then you find they are very... Uh, they are very proactive they are very passionate mm. about working with you to conserve uh, that resource so the model that works in uh, in my in with this fisher for communities is that model that has the community at the center of everything you plan with them uh, because if it is if it comes into creation of these fish breeding areas mm. then it is them uh, to do that and it is them also to to to, to to, to survey that and enforce that. Uh, for instance, uh, of course, we will use uh, we will we will use marker boys to mark the fish breeding area. Mm. But the first stage in doing that, first and foremost, is what we are calling uh, mental fence or, or or social fence, yeah. because this is what is sustainable, and that community is part and parcel of that. So, any project that does not uh, have community at the front line will always. Uh, Will always fail, and will always be accused of um, of, of human rights uh, yeah. abuses because the community have a right to use uh, the resource. Yeah. So you cannot keep them off from using the resource. You cannot keep them off from uh, uh, decision making. And all over, if we look at issues of natural resource management, those which proactively and genuinely involves the community stand a chance uh, to success and the community will always
mm. uh, support those endeavors. Yeah. I really wish this. <laughs> I really wish my government could hear this. <laughs> <laughs> and the and the NGOs, the conservation people, because I think the command and control is something we've still got here, and I really, I really want to seek on, because like you know, when I even in our local area, my local area in London, there are some and great community. Control is also very expensive. <laughs> it, is. Really, it is. It is right. It doesn't really look after itself. Because you see, uh, the government wants to do command and control, but they don't even have a fuel. Mm. to fuel a motorbike for the office, field office of government yeah. to go and uh, command and control things down there. Yeah. So command and control is uh, very expensive and therefore uh, participatory, yeah. uh, community-led kind of natural resource management is the way to go. Do you find this as well, if you had to have this shift from command to control to more community-led, is this the same in your country as well? Oh, well, uh, definitely there... Yeah, I, I think I kind of some combination of that. Well, at least in the communities that I'm working on, mm. the communities are the ones that are leading all the yeah, conservation yeah. because they have the resources, actually, yeah. and the government has not resources at all. No. Uh, there are several natural protected areas in, in Mexico, mm. and there are park rangers, and there are uh, some offices, but they mostly only do bureaucratic, administrative uh, things more, more than field work because they don't have uh, the budget to go to yeah. the field and to do surveillance uh, around the islands or... I, I am just uh, referring to, to the islands where yes, I am working yeah, course, on because yeah. definitely the conditions in different natural protected areas in Mexico is, are different, but definitely the budget for conservation is low mm. <laughs> right now. We have to, yeah, to, to get the money to seek for that. Yeah. Uh, well, in the, in the case of these cooperatives, they are the ones that I am in charge of, of that. I, I, the last question I'll ask you both is just very simply, for community-led conservation, like if you could say something to everyone on the planet about community-led conservation and how important it is, what would you say to everyone for them to be able to take away and take with them? The bottom line is that uh, these resources are not uh, there in a vacuum. These resources have got uh, their custodians. Uh, these resources have got uh, people who have been living with them, coexisting with them. And therefore, any conservation approach that ignores that fact is bound to fail. Uh, because uh, uh, if it is wildlife, communities have been living with those wildlife. And if wildlife have done any destruction, then it is those communities who have, uh, who have gone through uh, that uh, destruction. If uh, there is any intact forest, if there is any intact island, if there is any intact fisheries, then it is those communities who have been working uh, towards uh, con uh, sustaining of those uh, natural resources. Now within those communities, we have uh, people, uh, we have uh, culture, uh, we have uh, knowledge, we have skills, uh, we have energy, we have aspirations, we have uh, all that we need uh, to collaboratively work with them to deliver on sustainability of these natural resources. And therefore, we will always watch for community-led uh, conservation because uh, if, for instance, uh, you are an, you're, you're working with an NGO, your NGO will go, the money you have from donors will go, but that community will always be there. And therefore, working with them, empowering them to deliver on uh, sustainability of natural resources is the way to go.
don't uh, think that uh, you know it all don't uh, go there as an expert but go there as a facilitator listen to them listen to the youth listen to children listen to old people listen to women yeah because women are very intimately from my experience women are very intimately linked with the natural resources because if anything goes wrong with those natural resources they suffer more if there is no firewood it is women who will go long distances to get firewood if there is no water it is women who will go long distances to 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 get water mm. so it is always important to listen to those local voices so that uh, uh, factoring those local voices into our conservation approach stand a chance uh, to succeed thank you amazing thank you and Juliana yeah. yeah of course yeah <laughs> 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 he, he already said kind yeah. of the same I, I will just uh, um brief some summary about that that definitely what we had seen in all all these years that we had been working with island communities is mm. that the conservation led bad communities is the only way that we can maintain our conservation gains in the long term because we c you can have a lot of money and all the resources but if the community is not involved yeah. in that effort that will not uh, will be sustained in the long term and what we want to do is that that investment can can be yeah um, can be maintained in the long term so we're also I will have that that's the only I will say model that we have seen that uh, actually works mm. because well they are as already Leonard said they are the ones living there and we are only uh, I think I feel that we are just um, this uh, supporters of them we are the ones actually in my organization we are not using any more education uh, environmental education we are using more learning education because right. we believe that we is more like an exchange of experiences and knowledges between the communities more than we NGOs or we uh, government and university going to the communities to to teach something we are not teaching something we are sharing and we are building together with the communities because we have the same um, objective and we want to what we want to do is um, to have a better environment for for us now mm. in the present but mostly for the future generations thanks for listening to this bonus episode of into the wild to support us and help keep these extra episodes going head over to ko-fi.com forward slash into the wild pod link in bio to grab us a coffee if you're able to of course we are aware that current state of things is pretty dire thanks and nadia and i will see you on the next monthly episode